Welcome to Smarter Market, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by ABAX Technology, and I'm Michelle Dennedy, founder of Provatus Consulting, CEO of Stealthy Privacy, and your co-host and fearless guide through the intersection of privacy, security, and digital technology. Today's episode is the third in a five-part mini-series exploring the role of digital innovation in advancing the ESG economy. And we will be speaking with the lovely, talented, and brilliant Anne Rosenberg, Senior Vice President of Sustainable Development at Wood PLC, a global leader in consulting and engineering across energy and the built environment. Before joining Wood, Anne served as SVP of UN Partnerships at SAP, where she co-created SDG Ambition with the UN Global Compact at the World Economic Forum, an initiative that challenges and supports companies in being more transformative in how they run their businesses to deliver on the 2030 agenda and build on the emerging global ESG framework. Stay tuned. My interview with Anne Rosenberg is coming up next and you're going to like it. And now, back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets. So, Anne Rosenberg, thank you so much for joining us here on Smarter Markets. I am so intrigued, and I think we could spend three hours on just your background, but let's start right here in the present. In 2021, tell us a little bit about what you're doing with Wood PLC, and how does that connect to all the work that you've done in sustainability and really getting digital markets ready for the 21st century at last? Thank you so much, and uh, such an excitement moment to be part of this great podcast. So um, in the last year, I started at Wood PLC, uh, which is a huge engineering consultant company out of Scotland. It's more than 160 years old, uh, 45,000 people, work all over the world, 60 countries. And now is the moment really for sustainable infrastructure. And this is what we work with at Wood. And uh, you can see here with Joe Biden, where USFE joined the Paris Agreements, there is an absolutely amazing focus on sustainable infrastructure, not just to mention the latest 2.2 trillion infrastructure proposal that Joe Biden have come up with. And if we look across all the countries around the world, we really talk about the race for net zero. We talk about resiliency. We talk really about redefining the infrastructure to build back better. So being in a, a company like Wood right now is really, really exciting. And my focus is really working with sustainability across different sectors, but of course, having a huge focus on the net zero and of course, this year, COP26. So let's let's go right into Prop 26. Tell us a little bit more about that and how it impacts these efforts of sustainable infrastructure. So 2021 is a historical year, first of all, because it is the year where the vaccine has been rolled out. Uh, but it's also a historical year because the whole conversation around climate have accelerated. Uh, if we just go back to January, 
where um, Joe Biden became the president of the United States, we joined the Paris Agreements, we saw that 75% of all the conversations the World Economic Forum was around sustainability, resilience, and net zero, not to mention and forget the other things that are two good CEOs, but also had a big focus on climate and Bill Gates' lady book about how to avoid a climate disaster, and I could keep on going and going on this whole thing, the momentum, everything leading up to uh, COP26. And the interesting thing is that every year there is a key moment of event, but this year it is the COP26, but it's not just in the first two weeks of November, it's really everything leading up to COP. And I think there was a really exciting moment, again, historical moment, when Joe Biden united 40 world leaders just for a couple of weeks ago to talk about how countries can unite around climate. And I think that we all, I mean, whatever we see in the news, whatever we read, whatever we see on our social media, or whatever we, our daily conversations, it's really around how we can work on climate solutions together. Uh, so leading up to COP26, I can only say that my entire day is around uh, things leading up to COP26. But I think that uh, what is key about COP26 is not just going to be an event where we're going to have conversation about uh, climate, but it's really going to be an event where you will see a lot of incredible public-private partnership being unfold and be shown what that partnership are doing not what they are going to do, but what they are doing. We will see, I believe, product launches. We will see a lot of action. I would say whatever you are a startup or whatever you are in the private sector, governments, uh, the world, you know, wherever you are, uh, keep an eye on COP26 and all the things accelerating up to COP26. It's fascinating to think as we fit this into really, it's really a redo marketplace, right? In 2021, we all stayed home for a year. Um, if we were lucky enough to be able to do that, um, as you've said, we revolutionized and delivered vaccines at a breakneck pace. And we really started thinking more and more mainstream about climate and those kinds of things. How do we take something that was formerly sort of a CSR fluffy requirement. Yeah, we're climate people, we're green, we're carrying bags around. And really, how does that ESG metric now come into what you were saying is it's not just partnerships, but it's results. And how do we look at this as investors in the marketplace, as participants in the marketplace? How do we tangibly take these lofty goals and bring them down into day-to-day leadership and management and measurement? So I will uh, reply that from a couple of angles. First of all, we know that the 17 Global Goals have been here for some years now. And how do we now take that and, and really implement it? Because you can say a vision about working sustainability without an implementation is just a fantasy, right? So now it's really about implementing it. And it is a cooperation effort. First of all, what you see now, if you look at governments, uh, whatever you look at US or Denmark, where I'm from, or any countries around the world, there are so many new regulations coming out. There are so many uh, initiatives which is really around infrastructure. And it is not just ideas, but it's like commitment about when to become net zero. We see amazing things within the transportation sector. We see amazing things within the oil and gas industry. You know, we see amazing in agriculture. You can say any area we see those into two are uh, being committed. So the private uh, sector is playing a really key role. 
Secondly, another area where we are seeing great things is in the whole investor community. And in the investor community, we are seeing a very, very bold move. We are more or less saying, seeing that if you go out and are looking for investment, it is a requirement that, that the investment is going into ESG activities. Uh, and so that the whole investment market has shifted. And if you know the private sector, where I uh, recently came out with the SDG ambition that I created in collaboration with the UN Global Compacts and we launched with the Secretary General at World Economic Forum in 2020, uh, that is actually a framework that uh, have taken with 17 global goals, translated them into 10 business benchmarks. Because we need to remember that the 17 global goals and all the KPIs behind it is mainly created for the governance for, for countries. And it has been complicated, it is complicated for the private sector to implement. And that's the reason why we saw the need for translating them into the SDG ambition benchmarks. And some of them, the well-known uh, science-based emission reduction in line with 1.5. This is uh, where we look at the 1.5 up against the Paris Agreement, accused portion of companies have been signing up to that one. Also, if you look into 100% sustainable material inputs that are renewable, recycled, or reusable. So those 10 business benchmark is easy. They are built with some examples on where you need to go into your supply chain, into your underlying uh, enterprise architecture, how do you implement it. Together with those 10 business benchmark, we created a SDG implementation framework because to your point, how do you take this, like the idea about the 17 global goals and make it really implement, so you can implement them. So the SDG uh, implementation framework for businesses is really, it has three components to it. It has, the first one is like that you bring the SDGs into your vision, mission statement that many companies are doing today with a great net zero commitment. Then you're going to make sure that you have the right governance in place. And that means that your board, your, your C-level in the company has a good knowledge about what it means to be a net zero driven company or a sustainability company. Then you make sure that your corporate strategy and goals are lined up against this. That means that you can report on it. And that's where uh, I always say that 2020, on top of that, it was the year of COVID. It was also the year where many framework within the ESG SAP space came out. 2021 is the year, of course, where the vaccine is being rolled out. It's also the year where the carbon reporting is becoming a normality. So we see now that carbon reporting tools are being, is coming to market for three weeks ago. Wood now together with Microsoft Envision, which is a carbon reporting uh, tool. And many companies are coming out with different kind of reporting frameworks. The interesting thing here is that we historically, we have not been reporting up against ESD and the SDGs or sustainability. And that's why that finding real-time data where you can do this kind of reporting has not been easy. And that's what the focus is on right now, because when you, as a company, have committed to a net zero sign up to 1.5, you want to be net zero by 2050. Of course, you want ongoing to measure real-time data. Of course, you want to do that. So that is what needs to be in place. When that is in place, the second part of this is to make sure that you integrate the SDGs and the SDG ambition and your climate strategy into your operation. And that means that your supply chain, your quality insurance processes, how do you produce products? Literally, how do you create and go to markets, whatever industry you're in, how do you do that? 
because that needs, of course, to be totally aligned with the commitment that you've been given. And this is where the SDG ambition are helping you to go into every single business process, process step, data model, underlying enterprise architecture. When we built that framework, we found out there was actually a 35% technology gap if you go across the 17 global goals with for businesses that represent the 10 business benchmarks. And if we look at climate, there's actually a 7% technology gap. So that means in the clean tech area, there's a huge technology gap. But that has to do with them historically when we built software solutions, and I've been in the software space for more than 21 years, when we did design of software, like the design principles, we did not include the sustainability design into it. It was more for efficiency, optimization, and innovation. So that's the reason why we now see a huge acceleration. And then also for everybody listening in, there's a call for action that we really go in and we build clean tech and green tech solutions uh, to go in and help. And this is also the Bill Gates book I referred to. Bill Gates speak a lot about, we have the technology, we now just need to design the solutions. And that's what, what we need to see. Then of course, the people management, because you can say every single person in the company needs to walk and talk to ESG and SDGs. And then not to forget, forget the corporate finance, you know, the whole investing, how the company is uh, working with capital, uh, the financial strategy of the company needs to be according to the right sustainability and ESG frameworks. The last part of the framework, I think all of this is super exciting, but this is a part that actually it has accelerated, I would say, faster than I thought it actually would have done, uh, which I really think has to do with COVID. That is the whole thing about stakeholder engagement. So... That would now, we can see that when we receive tenders, it is a requirement that we as a company are totally sustainable, that the way we go to market, the way we deliver our services is sustainable. And this is what I hear for the industry, no matter what industry you're in, that the consumer, the uh, collaboration partner, it's not enough, of course, that we're sustainable. We also want to work with partners that are sustainable because in the end, it is an open supply chain. In that area, which is, I'm also really excited about, we have access extremely fast, is the public-private partnership. Many of the projects that we work on, it's really like a public-private partnership where we go in. Again, I will say if you go before COVID, I think with COVID, I've learned the world that if you come together in a united way, you can actually accelerate extremely fast and build solutions. Like if you look at the vaccine, right? Right. Uh, totally unheard that you can come up with a vaccine so fast. So I think that the COVID have really shown us what you can achieve if you do it together. And then, of course, in the framework, you also have the sales and marketing. So when you go to market, of course, you go to market, you commercialize your sustainability. So you're not only sustainable inside the company, but you commercialize and you, you go to market sustainable products. And that has requirements to your sales, your marketing, how you go to market, how you talk about your products. You can say what has happened is that sustainability has become, is now the call of the business and it is becoming a CEO agenda. Yeah. I, so I, I want to get there because I, I glom onto ESG through data governance and data efficiency and data sustainability with human rights and et cetera. At times, I'm not sure if it's sort of uh, built into the margin, but what I want to get to is how do we make sustainability 
upward friction on margin? How do we get investors to look at a company that is acting sustainably throughout the supply chain, as you've said, being innovative, building up those tech solutions to support the metrics and the motion of getting our carbon under control? How do we translate that into our, you know, quarter by quarter, how much money did you make and how much do I get? And how do we, how do we make that cross that bridge and make sure that this is investable? So this is a, a really exciting question because you can say, if you kind of just go one step back, and I'm a science fiction writer, and I came out with a science fiction book for two years ago. The reason why I did that was that I was living in Silicon Valley, and I was living in this heaven of innovation and collaboration of innovation. And this is why I think it's the it's soul of Silicon Valley, is that it just have a way of collaborating around innovation. But that's what I call innovation 1.0. Innovation 2.0 is that, of course, it's not only Silicon Valley. It happens all over the world, and every single city has a soul of, you know, UN is in New York, so in, in New York, it's really about innovation with purpose. And so every city has something special. But then I kind of found out that even though you can do innovation all over the world and you, you have money floating into all this investing, uh, like floating into all this innovation, I asked myself the question, but what are we innovation for? What are we trying to achieve here, right? Right. And that is where uh, I was fortunate to come to New York, more or less uh, one year after the 17 Global Goals was, came out. And I was asked to build our big innovation space uh, at SAP. And I built up a huge use innovation space at Hudson Yard that I dedicated to UN. Because I realized that when you innovate, you do it for building a better world and for humanity, right? And then I kind of thought, okay, now I get it. You know, we have exponential technology. You can do anything you want with technology and you do it for good. Technology for good. But then I found out that if you want to get to 2030 and have solved all the 70 global goals and you want to be net zero in 2050, that has nothing to do with a linear approach. You can't just, you can just innovate in a linear approach. You really need to come up with whole new ideas. And let's go back to the investing world because we have seen historically, just a couple of years back, not that far back, that the investors going in and investing into something that first will give get a payback, uh, even with a lot of uncertainty. Uh, actually, when you read Bill Gates' book, you hear some of the investing that he has been doing that some worked, some didn't work, but because you're investing into some radical different solutions that my work might not work. So it's a much bigger risk-taking when you invest into new energy resources to help us uh, with our climate crisis. But I will say during the last couple of months, I would say this year and mid of last year, the investment world, because of, you can say, the commitment from governments, the commitment from the private sector, you know, COVID have become something we all have been impacted by, the money is beginning to flow in the right directions. And even though there's a lot of uncertainty about what would be the right energy resources going forward, because we are planning into 2050. And if I go back to my science fiction, that was the reason why I came up with the science fiction book, because I realized that if you want to invent something for 2050, you need a science fiction mindset where you need a time travel into 2050. We also call it scenario planning. You are in 2050, you look at, then you look at, okay, how is that world looking like? If it should be totally net zero, it should be totally sustainable. What would that take? And then you plan backwards, right? Right. 
And and of course, you can say for investors, it's another type of risk taking. There's no doubt about it. But we are seeing the change because the whole world are saying, you know, it's really a matter of survival. It's a matter about that we we come up with some new energy resources that can help us going forward. So it's not a nice, but it's a need to do, right? So I am definitely seeing a shift in the market. Yeah, I want to live in the world that you live in, Anne, because I love it. And I think you're right, absolutely, about, you know, the crazier you think on the dark side, like Black Mirror in my world is like my dystopian privacy video, right? I tell everyone to watch it. You have to imagine what the the end result will be and the goal will be before you can reverse engineer it. Otherwise, you're just playing with Legos and hoping that something will take shape. So the book that I wrote, it actually turned out to become a historic book. And it's actually interesting when you think about it, because if you go 200 years back in time or more than 100 years back in time, you know, and you think about where did we get power from and energy from and so on, you know, it, it was resources, right? What actually happened was that I was together with Sophia the Robot at a panel at UN. And then I went back to my husband and we saw Westworld that weekend. And it was a, the real Westworld for Night Night to say the two. And I was looking at West, the Westworld movie and, and that one was created before Sophia the Robot. And then because I'm a student now at Singularity University, I went to a session with Singularity University a couple of days afterwards. And I began to think about there's something going on here. So me together with my team, we watched for one week as many science fiction movies as we could. And then we began to map it into technology that we could see today. And then we began to see a pattern. And then I began to write a book about, you know, going back to Charlie Chaplin in 1923 about the modern machine. And suddenly you could see some patterns, right? And you can say, we don't know what we don't know. That means we don't know what we don't know when we go into uh, with the net zero in 2050, right? So it is important that we dare to think ahead of ourselves. And that is what science fiction thinking can help you to do. I love it because it also, like you said, it's fanciful, but it also creates patterns because all of these things are created by the seeds of ideas that those writers had even early on. You know, you look at 1984 as a dystopia of 19, what was going on in 28, or, or I'm sorry, 48. And it's, I think this is the way to like start to incrementally measure as well. How outrageous are you? And maybe incent someone to be even more outrageous, which is sort of how I feel about Silicon Valley. I think we are, there's a lot of incentive money to be absolutely audacious and outrageous and, and do things that people think will never succeed. Um, like Webvan failed miserably in the early aughts, but look at us now. Everyone's getting their groceries delivered at home. Yeah, exactly right. And this is this is also what COVID have done. COVID had, I have a friend who came, had come up with a concept called share of life. Share of life is about that you actually live, and we actually do, you live on an operating system. And if you look at Amazon, or you look at Google, or you look at Apple, right? You can say, if you look at how many percent of share of life that you share with Google, how many hours a day or minutes a day, do I share my life with Google or with Amazon or with Apple? You work, you meet friends, you do your grocery, you do your learning, you do your payment, entertainment. But it was amazing doing COVID because that was how you were able to live in a safe world and still be able to navigate. Because what, what I also always say to people is that in the end, 
Yes, we live in 2021, but if you go one or two or three years back, it is still the same basic needs that we have the Maslow's Pyramid. It's just different ways that you get the food delivered or that you get transported from A to B. And that is what we really got challenged with the COVID, that we still had the same basic needs and we were able to navigate in it because of the technology platforms, right? Yeah, and I think it's getting that balance right. Now, I'm not going to let you go without naming your book. You should shamelessly, I know you've written a number of business books that are really great for strategy and I recommend them, but tell us your science fiction book so everyone can get a copy. It's really funny because it's not, I'm so sorry, it's not written for people who, I mean, of course, everybody's into science fiction movies, but it is really written for the enterprise. Uh, it's called Science Fiction and Starship for Enterprise Innovation. I would say of all the books I, I've been writing, I think this has been the most joyful one and also the mo most interesting. I also did a TEDx talk on it. It is interesting because every single person has a sci-fi inside themselves. And, you know, uh, no matter where you are in the organization, what kind of organization you're in, everybody have that playfulness inside themselves. And so w when you let that come out, it's unbelievable what you can create. But I will say one thing, many companies have for years, like Wood, have been using scenario planning. And, and that is really what science fiction, science fiction thinking is. It is scenario planning where you say, what is the scenario if we are in 2050? And we, we go back in your back to the future, back and forwards, right? And that is exactly, if we want to be able to really reach the net zero by 2050 and be successful with all the 70 global goals, we need to dare to think that way. But, but the last thing I want to say about it in my whole journey with those books is kind of like innovation with purpose. You cannot just do innovation without doing for purpose because you can also innovate, just to say Black Mirror, you can innovate the wrong things, right? So the purpose mindset that you get with seven global goals, make sure that you do it for the better of humanity. And that's the key. I normally say we all work for UN. I know I don't work for UN, but everything I do, I do for UN because UN unite us and make sure that, like they say, that nobody's left behind, that we, we take care of everybody in the world, right? And the last thing I want to say about this is that it's so important when you begin to redesign and design to become net zero that you design something that is scalable, affordable, and accessible for everybody. That's the design principles. Yeah. Well, what a ride. We have gone 200 years into the past, 200 years into the future, and achieved our 2030 sustainability goals all in one happy hour together. We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets with Ann Rosenberg, SVP of Sustainable Development and Wood. Please join us next Saturday morning as we continue today's conversation with Jacqueline Horton. As the Social Impact and Sustainability Manager at Dropbox, Jacqueline is responsible for the overall direction of the Dropbox Foundation, Dropbox for Good, and leading the company's overall sustainability and carbon neutrality initiatives. She strongly believes that companies have a responsibility to contribute positively to the global community and are uniquely positioned to do so. Through her work in social impact and sustainability, Jacqueline hopes to empower others to be socially and environmentally conscious citizens and show corporate leaders that social impact is not only the right thing to do, but the smart thing to do. And I can't wait for you to hear what she has to say. 
Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets. Your ratings and reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other podcast platforms mean the world to us, as does your help in spreading the word about Smarter Markets via social media and word of mouth. On behalf of ABAX Technologies, I'm Michelle Dennity. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. 